Amen. Good morning. I'm not Scott. What we do is we tell you Scott's preaching to get you to church. And then you put me up here. <laughs> Take that. Um, my name is Kenny Baker. I'm one of the family members here at Refuge. It's always a privilege to preach. I'm always thankful to the elders uh, for giving me the opportunity to preach. But most importantly, I'm thankful uh, to my wife for uh, saying yes, because this takes a toll on her as much as, much as it does on me or you, uh, because she has to double down on uh, watching the kids and, and taking care of our family. And so uh, just very thankful to my wife, uh, Kimberly. So um, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into his word this morning. God, this is your time, not my time. This is a time for us to sit under the authority, the truth of your word. And so, God, I pray that in this moment you would settle our hearts, that you would calm our minds. God, make us attentive to hearing the truth of your word. Make much of Jesus this morning. May your spirit pour out in power by the proclaiming of the truth about who you are. Lord, draw us near to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the third year in a row, the popular Bible app, YouVersion, has uh, reported that the most popular verse on the app deals with the themes of worry and anxiety. In 2017, the top verse was Joshua 1.9, which reads, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And then in 2018, the top verse was Isaiah 41, verse 10. It says, do not fear, for I am with you. And this year, 2019, Uversion users sought peace from Philippians 4.6. It says this, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And verse 7 continues, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Three years in a row, the most popular search theme around Scripture has been around worry and anxiety. And Pew Research has, has come out and said that the top three things that people are most concerned about, they're most worried about, is personal health crises the ability to pay bills, and invasions and violence such as home invasions or terrorist attacks. So if you are someone who struggles with worry or anxiety and, and one of those three things or all three of those uh, worry you on a day-to-day basis, then uh, research would say uh, you're not alone in that. In fact, most people you know have the same anxieties and worries that you do. Now, while it is encouraging to see that so many people cling to God's word and they go to God's word about their anxieties looking for answers, it's also troubling to know that so many of us don't have an overwhelming peace in our lives. The reality is our worries seem to overwhelm us 
and surpass our peace. If God's word not only reassures us of his peace, but it also commands us to pray and petition God for his peace, then why is worry and anxiety so prevalent in our lives? Why are we becoming a people who struggle to find peace, to rest in peace? Well, this morning we're going to dive into Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And if I were to sum up my sermon for you in one sentence, if grandma asks you at lunch, what did you learn at church today? You can give, him one, give her one sentence. And it's this. If you want peace in your life, you don't need an absence of battles. You need the presence of God's power. If you want peace in your life, you don't need an absence of battles. You need the presence of God's power. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is this passage talking about? <laughs> Do you ever read something in Scripture and go, that was powerful. What, what does it mean? <laughs> what in the, that seems like there's, if I knew something about what was going on there, I, it, it, would, it would make me give the stank face, the, mm, that was good. We've got to ask the question, what is this passage talking about? Well, Isaiah, the prophet, he's dealing with the anguish and the gloom of the people. He's addressing their worry and their anxiety. Now, let me tell you about the anguish he, he's referring to here. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali are strategically located in Galilee. This is northern Israel for a trade route. 
Now, this area was a primary location where they would always get invaded. There was always war going on in this land. And part of it was the strategic uh, location of this region. But, but these people have now become accustomed to ongoing battles and war. It was always getting devastated. It was always getting invaded. In fact, around the time that Isaiah 9 is referring to, it's being written, the Assyrians have wiped out this air area and deported the residents and taken over. God tells them in chapter 8 verse 4 that that this was going to happen. So not only does war and battles come their way, God tells them before it's going to happen. Could you imagine if if God told you, hey, this time next year you're going to be completely bankrupt and broke? It's a little more real, isn't it? Your house is going to be taken from you. You can imagine the anxiety. What do I need to do? What is going on? You're trying to figure out what to do, and the anxiety is going to overtake you. In fact, back in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah has a kid. He names him Maharshalah Hashbaz. I'm just going to say it one time. And God says, before the boy can cry out, my mother and my father, because he could say that before he could say his own name. (laughs) He says, before your boy can call out to mother and father, your land is going to be wiped out. So you can imagine living in a city that was always susceptible to being invaded. Living somewhere where there was no peace, the presence of war was a way of life. This is the gloom and the anguish that these people faced. The battles and the wars would not let up. They couldn't put their guard down. Peace seemed like a distant reality for the people of this region. So so they were looking for a king who would put an end to the war in the land. Now, for most of us in this room, we can somewhat relate to this type of gloom and and anguish because we are constantly in a battle with the things that cause us anxiety and worry, are we not? We are facing different battles. We are fighting a different war, but we are fighting for peace nonetheless. Our anxieties are brought on by different circumstances. Our anguish is rooted not in the fear of the city being overtaken, but in our bodies being overtaken by cancer or disease. Our minds losing the war on depression and sadness. Our hearts tense from inexplicable worry. What steals our peace is living lives that are always in a fight with worry and anxiety. Many of us are facing these battles daily, from addictions to anger, to shame, to depression, to physical disabilities and ailments from disease, and it seems like a never-ending battle. It seems like the war has overtaken your life, and you are living in a land that is always susceptible to destruction. Some of us are in marriages where we feel utterly defeated 
or in constant battle with our spouse. Some of us have secret sins that we hide because we think we can conquer it someday without anybody ever knowing, but it has been five 10, 15, 20 years of being defeated by the same sins over and over and over until we just accept that it's a hopeless fight and we give up. Some of us have a family that we go to war with every day or every holiday. We can relate to the people of Galilee in that our lives are war-torn. Our hearts feel no peace because of a constant battle. We are craving peace, but the constant fight has us ready to give up. We feel defeated in the war. No wonder our worry and our anxiety has turned into anguish. We're tired of losing the fight. We're ready for a season of calm. We're looking for that thing that will provide unending peace in our hearts, in our homes, in our finances, in our health. We want the calm. We want the serenity. We want the security. We need peace. Now, while the first few minutes of this sermon may have increased your anxiety, I do have some good news for you. You see, this passage begins and it ends with a promise. In verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The people who have faced gloom and anguish and worry and anxiety, there will be no more gloom. And in verse 7, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a passage surrounded by a promise of God's work. There will be no more gloom. There will be no more anguish, no more worry, no more anxiety. There will be peace, and God himself will do it. How, Sway? We got two people who got that reference. How is this going to happen? Well, in verse 6, Isaiah says, There There will be a child born, a son given who will be a king, and his government shall uh, have an increasing and unending peace. But before Isaiah uh, gets to announcing the one who would bring peace in verse 6, in verses 2 through 5, he gives a picture, he gives a vision to the people that describes the life of peace. Look in verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Light is going to shine on those in darkness. That means that the people who walk in darkness will now walk in light. There's going to be a transformation in the people. There's something you need to know about how the Bible teaches us about peace. In the Old Testament, peace was tied to a covenant. It was tied to an agreement between God and his people. And you can see the summary of this covenant in Leviticus 26. But the people of Israel made an agreement with with God that they will obey his commands. And in return to their obedience, God would keep them safe. He would keep peace in their land. He would provide for their needs. 
So their, their land keeps getting invaded and they keep experiencing devastation because of their disobedience to God. Now, the promises of God were good. Their enemies would run from them. God would send rain in its due season so they wouldn't experience famine. They could dwell in their land securely. So they didn't have a bad deal here. It was not a bad contract with God. This just wasn't an agreement where the conditions weren't enough to motivate them. So why couldn't they obey God? Why couldn't they keep their end of the bargain? They were tired of getting invaded, but they kept doing the things that brought the invasion. What's wrong with these people? They had an issue with their hearts. They kept walking in disobedience to God because their heart's desires were corrupted. They didn't want God above all things. They wanted what he could give them, but they didn't want him. The people kept walking in darkness because they desired the things contrary to God's character. And the first picture we see of a people who who live in peace is that they no longer walk in darkness. Their hearts are transformed and they now walk in light, in obedience to God's command. But light didn't come from them. They couldn't produce the light that was needed to walk in obedience to God's commands. Because it says this. It says, on them light has shone. That means it came from outside of themselves onto them. They couldn't produce a light themselves. They they couldn't produce obedience themselves because their hearts and their words were trapped in darkness. So in order for peace to come, a light would have to enter into darkness. Sin would have to be exposed and dealt with so there could be a change in God's people. Now, while that sounds promising and terrifying at the same time, verse 3 shows us a picture that walking in light, being, uh, being changed and transformed by, by God here, it increases joy, not burden. It increases joy, not obligation. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 3 shows us the picture that walking in light, being changed, should increase our joy. It shouldn't make us feel obligated. Oh, I can't do this because it won't please God. Oh, I can't do this because it won't please God. But instead, it's I am walking and following God in obedience because he's made that my primary desire. And that brings joy. When God changes people by shining light on their darkness, it should elicit a response of rejoicing. Because God could have left them in the dark. He could have left each and every one of us in the room in the dark. 
God could have let them continue to be overpowered and overwhelmed by the very things that keep bringing war and distress in their life. But, but God exposing the sin of his people, changing them to walk in obedience to him should call us to respond with joy. What, what does this tell us about dealing with our sin? Pastor Scott preached this a few months ago where he said, we have to stop running and stop hiding in our sin because joy is just on the other side of handing our sin over to God. Peace is just on the over side of handing our sin over to God. He will deal with it with perfect justice and perfect mercy, as it says in verse 7. Which brings us to verse 4, where they are called to remember the battle at Midian. Now, in Judges chapter 6 through 8, it tells the story of God delivering his people from impossible circumstances. Impossible circumstances. Because the people of Israel did what was evil in God's sight. They were handed over to be crushed by Midian for seven years. They had to hide in caves. Every time they tried to grow up plants to eat, they would get destroyed. They would get taken from them. This was truly an impossible low for the people of Israel. And what it did is it caused them to cry out to God. So God raised up Gideon, a man from the weakest tribe in Israel called Manasseh. Gideon's words. He says, God, what are you doing calling me? I'm from the weakest tribe in Israel. We can't do nothing. We're the old mess of... <laughs> Sometimes you just got to pander to... <laughs> he raised up Gideon. Once Gideon gathered all his soldiers, I think it was around 22,000, God says, all right, send them all home. Just keep 300 of them. And Gideon was like, man, you got to be joking me, right? God used Gideon, the man from the weakest tribe, and a mere 300 men to destroy the juggernaut of a nation called Midian. Why does God do stuff like this? It's because we can't take credit for any of it. We can't take credit for any of it. We can't say that Gideon had a great strategy. In fact, he had a pretty terrible strategy. We can't say that this weak tribe somehow found the strength. No, instead what God did is he put them in a position to need him above all other things. Are you, are, are, am I preaching to you yet? God did it this way so the people could only attribute victory to God. So the burden of sin, the overwhelming difficulty and anguish that sin brought to the people of Israel, God wanted to show them that only he could deal with it. Peace comes from knowing it was brought by God God alone. When God is active in our lives, anxiety and worry don't hold the ultimate power in our life. While the sound of boots marching in the land 
would have struck fear in the hearts of people. If we turn to God, there is a peace and a calm that he will give to us. But verse 5 tells us that the boots that struck fear, the garments soaked in blood, would only be fuel for the fire. God is saying he will deal with the things that strike the deepest feelings of anguish in our heart. He will deal with the things that that we have fought with, that we have battled with for decades and years and all of our life, that, that these are the things that he will overcome. These are the things that it takes his power to overcome. Because there's a promise Where he says that in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea. This was a land that was in contempt, that was war torn, that was in anguish, and he was going to make it a land that was glorious. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can take your war-torn, almost-gone marriage and save it? Do you believe that God can change your heart so much that the sins you have been fighting for decades won't have power over you anymore? Do you believe that God will not only reveal your sin, but he will deal with it and restore you back to himself? Do you believe that God will increase your joy? That God will increase your peace? Do you believe that God has the power to give you peace in the thick of your battle with anguish and gloom and anxiety and worry and depression? Do you believe God? Or are the battles that you face too tumultuous? Are they too far gone? That's why God calls us to remember the things that he's already done. Because we forget his power. We stop believing in his power. We look back at the Exodus story and all that he did to save his people. Only he could take credit for that. We look back at the the battle at Midian and and say God whittled down the people to, to a point of utter weakness so that he could say it was only in my power was this defeated. He is bringing you to the end of yourself with your own sin, your own worry, your own anxiety to say you cannot defeat this in your own power. You need my power. Several years ago, there was a submarine It was being tested, and it had to remain submerged overnight at an alarmingly deep level. And when it returned to the harbor the next morning, the captain asked, how did that terrible storm last night affect you guys? And the officer looked at him in surprise and exclaimed, storm? We didn't even know there was a storm. You see, the sub had been so far beneath the surface that it had reached the area known to sailors as the cushion of the sea. And although the ocean 
was whipped into fits of huge waves and, and, and fish and waves were tossed back and forth with violent winds through the storm. The waters below never stirred. This, I believe, is the picture of the peace of Christmas. The peace that Christ brings. That the waves of worry, the waves of fear, of heartbreak cannot Touch those whose peace is found in the depths of God's character, in the depths of God's promises, in the depths of God's work. You see, when our peace is not resting on the currents of our situation, on the surface of our finances, when our peace is not resting on the, the surface of our health or, or, or resting on the, whatever work situation we're, we're dealing with, but it is consumed with God himself. When we are consumed with God himself, our peace cannot be disturbed. Amen. So how does God give us this peace? It says in verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. God is going to establish a new ruler, a new king, a new authority over the lives of his people. Many of these kings that, that, that God's people had over them had actually led them astray. Many of the rulers perpetuated idolatry and disobedience to God. These, these kings and rulers and authorities kept subjecting God's people to God's judgment by leading them into rebellion. And we have also fallen victim to being ruled by our own desires that have led us away from God. We have been subject to our own self-centered hearts. We have allowed the darkness in us to control us, to guide us. But God is going to send a new king. Verse 7 says, his rule will expand and grow stronger and stronger with his, his rule. His peace will come and there will be no end to the peace that he brings. And his, his throne will be established and upheld with righteousness and justice. The people of God, the nation of Israel were eager for a king like that. They were anticipating and yearning for a ruler who would lead them in righteousness and justice. And we yearn for the very same thing. And he will do this by the power of who he is. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God himself will incarnate into the darkness of the world and shine light of life among men. God isn't just going to give us another king. He's not just going to give us a better circumstance. He's not just going to fill the bank account. He's not just going to rip away the disease. He's, he's not just going to give us job stability. He is going to give us himself. And this promised Savior will be a wonderful counselor. That means there's no foolishness in him. His plans for you will bring you delight. He is a ruler whose wisdom goes beyond mere human capability. 
The promised Savior is our mighty God. There, this is the title of the Lord himself. No power will overcome him. No darkness will infiltrate him. The promised Savior is our everlasting Father. He will be our benevolent protector. He will be our eternal King. The promised Savior is our Prince of Peace. His reign will bring unity. His authority will lead to order. His character will be trustworthy. This promised child would be born in Bethlehem. He would grow up in the region of Galilee in a little town called Nazareth. Just down the road from Zebulun and Naphtali. In the midst of a war-torn people. In Matthew chapter 4. Jesus begins his ministry. And it says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the promised child who would be born, and upon his arrival would bring peace between God and man. But here's the amazing thing. Upon the birth of the Son, upon the gift of Jesus, the gift from God to men, it says that his peace would continue to increase. We look at our world today and we say, man, it's really gone downhill. Oh man, why isn't it like the good old days? I'll leave my soapbox for another Sunday on that one. But we sit here and we think, man, we're, we're nearing the end. Stuff's happening. Political stuff's breaking down. War is happening. The, you know, kids are on YouTube all day. That's obviously a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> but the word says, for to us, a child is born. And what? Of his reign, his government, there will be unending, increasing peace. Because Christ has been born, he has actually given us increasing peace here on earth. Because when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he says, repent. He says, come back to God. He says, the kingdom of heaven is here. So our hope for peace is not just when we die. It will be fully realized in the afterlife, in eternity. But we can have peace and peace increasing with Christ here today. But I know what you're thinking. My issue isn't with God, it's with my health. My issue isn't with God, it's with my marriage. My issue isn't with God, it's with my finances. My issue isn't with God, it's with those who threaten my safety or happiness. 
And that's where we miss our issue with the lack of peace in our lives. We think our lack of peace is caused by external circumstances that disrupt the calm. But our lack of peace stems from the lack of abiding in God's presence in our lives. We have left the depths of our fellowship with God to rest on the surface things of our lives. In Isaiah 26.3, he says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You want to have perfect peace? Stay your mind and your heart on the Lord. It is not a sexy answer. It is not the the one, two, threes of peace or the acronym, you know, pray, eat, allow stuff. You know, there's no acronym that will bring peace. We'll come up with one later and we'll figure that out. But no, what, what does the word say? It keeps calling us back to Christ. It keeps calling us back to the presence of God. What does Paul say in Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, what does he say? Get your life together and there will be a little more peace. Save instead of spend and there will be peace. Oh, he says, pray about everything. When Jesus greets people, he says, peace be with, peace be with you, my peace I give unto you. Where do you get peace? It comes from God and God alone. It says that God will keep him in perfect peace who stays their mind on the Lord. The reason why our peace keeps getting disturbed is because we keep bringing it to the surface things that are disrupting our peace. We keep thinking if God would just fix this financial situation, peace will come. And he says, no, you can have peace in the midst of these waves. You can have peace in the midst of these battles. Sink deep into my word, deep into my character, deep into me and fellowship with me. You don't need the other things. It doesn't mean that our health is trivial. It doesn't mean that our financial situation is a joke to God. Or the fears that grip us go unnoticed by God. Actually, it's quite the contrary. Because your health matters to God. Because your provision matters to God. Because your anxiety matters to God. He calls you to run to Him for peace. He calls you to come to Him for the peace that's being disrupted. What do you need to experience God's peace in your life? You got to be made new. You got to be transformed. We can't just acknowledge God in this season. We can't just tip our hat to God by showing up to church. You need Jesus to shine a light on the things that separate you from God and then believe that he actually died in your place as a substitute for you. His death was payment for your sin. 
and his resurrection was victory over sin. You must reorient your life around his word and abide in Christ. He, he didn't save us from darkness to continue to walk in darkness. So when you believe that, that Christ paid the price to make peace between you and God, your heart changes to desire to walk in obedience to God, to walk in the light. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't obey God to be accepted by him. Remember, he shone light into darkness. He came before you walked in the light. We are accepted by him because of Christ, and we obey because it increases our joy. Our joy. The motivation is different when you aren't trying to earn God's favor. We can't earn it. We can't produce it ourselves. Christ earns God's favor for you. If peace in the Old Testament rested on the people's obedience to God, then peace in the New Testament rests on Christ's obedience to God and his sacrifice. If our heart is changed and we are made spiritually new by God, we will start to see our world change. It, it doesn't mean all the battles will stop, but we will start to see victory in them. When we dive deeper into our relationship with God and immerse ourselves fully in his power, he can bring peace to you in the midst of your anxieties. He can bring peace between feuding spouses. He can bring peace in the midst of facing death. And the peace from God doesn't just come from acknowledging him or saying he is real. It comes from obeying him. It comes from walking with him. Because you are ultimately trusting God to do a work in you that you can't do yourself. You are ultimately trusting God to do a work in others that you can't do for them. If you want peace in your life, you don't need an absence of battles. You need the presence of God's power. We have access to the peace of God through Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. I hope this doesn't feel like an oversimplification of the message or the gospel today. But it's simply this. Your peace comes from focusing on the things that disrupt your peace. Your anxiety comes from focusing on the things that disrupt your peace. Peace will come when you go to God and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in this season. I don't know what you're doing through this situation. I don't know what you're doing in, in my health or in my family, but I know that it is drawing me back to you. So, Lord God, root me deeply in who you are, in your word, in your character, in the work of Christ, and give me the peace that surpasses all understanding, that surpasses all circumstance. God is just calling you back to himself. If you want peace, you don't need an absence of battles. You need the presence of God's power. Let's pray.